It's a dangerous day to be at church because when I was getting ready this morning, I did something I almost never do. I forgot my watch. You never want your speaker to forget his watch, right? So you may need to wave at me if I go too long. Um, a thousand couples have been surveyed here at New Spring Early, and you guys took the deep love assessment, which meant you entered your information and your responses, and you got a tailor-made generated answer folder to let you know some of the issues that you're working on as a couple and how you can do things better. We didn't get any private information, but we got an aggregate report of what you felt like were the biggest issues that you wanted to work on. And so throughout this series, Needs, this is your series. You are the ones who have told us by your data what you would like to talk about, those who are in couple relationships. And um, today, um, I want to talk about the single most issue that you said that you expect to have conflict over. But before we get into that, let me just uh, tell you some good news as I dived into the data to look at it this week. Um, there was a statement, and below that statement, there were statistics that were reported in regard to the, to the congregation. And here is the statement. I feel incredibly good about our relationship, okay? That's, that's the statement, and you reflected how you felt about that particular statement. So look at this. I feel incredibly great about my relationship. That's a strong statement, okay? So I was interested in finding out how many of you said, I feel that, and this is the first response, it's very true, very true. I feel incredibly great about my relationship. Very true. How many? 42%. Surveys in, the numbers say 42, that's four, over four out of 10 of you who took the survey said, we feel incredibly great about our relationship. Now, before I say that, I don't know if this, this was the response of two people in a relationship or one person in a relationship, but 42% of you said, I feel incredibly great as lead pastor here at New Spring. I feel pretty good about that. So let's go into the next one. Uh, the next response was, I feel like this statement is somewhat true, mostly true, rather, mostly true. I don't know if that means that, like, I think it's almost incredibly great or on some days it's incredibly great and some days it's not. But 35% of you said it is mostly true. <clears throat> the third potential response was, it is somewhat true. <laughs> um, and 13% said it is somewhat true. So now if you look at the statement, I feel incredibly great about our relationship. And there is that line between positive and negative. Do the math. 90% of you, almost a thousand couples surveyed said, we feel at some level incredibly great about our relationship. That's a good feeling. Now, hey, listen, I know statistics, and I understand that there are some of you out there more analytical and dubious, and you're saying, well, Mark, those who didn't feel incredibly great might not have been inclined to take the survey. Or you would say perhaps there's someone who is a problem in a relationship, and perhaps wife couldn't talk to the guy and take the, relationship, uh, take the survey. Totally get that. But there's no denying the data from those of you who took the survey. 90% of you said, at some level, we feel incredibly great about our relationship. But here's the thing that got to me. When you let us know the five things that you expected to have conflict about, of the single issues, and by the way, it's interesting, forgive me for breaking a sentence, men and women had the same five. Now, they were distributed a little bit differently, but men and women had the same five. Here at New Spring, you said these are the five things that we expect to have conflict over Men and women had the same single issue at the top. 
money. So 90% of couples say they're incredibly happy at some level with their relationship, but overwhelmingly both men and women said we expect to have conflict over money. Well, here's the thing. If you're happy and you're having conflict over money, you're not all by yourself because a lot of people are in the same boat with you. Have you ever wondered why it is that we argue over money? Because here's the thing, and I want to talk to anybody who's married recently. Maybe you've been married within six months or a year. Here's what you're saying to yourself. You know what? When I was single, I never argued about money at all. (laughs) That's right. I never had any arguments about money. I got married. Now I have arguments. Guess what? It's got to be her fault. It's got to be his fault because when I was single, I never argued about money. Well, the issue is a little bit more complicated than that because the truth is when you join your life together with someone else, there is a tension now that exists about how you're going to handle money. Now, when you think about it, it's kind of bizarre that we argue over money. I think the first reason why we argue over money is a lot is at stake. You know what? If you're dealing with somebody else's money, and Lord knows the government can teach us that, if you're dealing with somebody else's money, there's not a lot of concern. The story I heard the other day about four guys who just finished a round of golf over here at the country club. They were getting dressed in the, in the dressing room, and a cell phone rang, and a guy picked up a cell phone, a woman's voice on the other end. She said, honey, uh, I, was, I know we're not trying to spend money, but just tell you, I'm over here at the Mercedes dealership, and they got a 17, and it only has a few miles on it. They got it just really, really cut down in price, and, and I know we're trying to save money, but I'd like to talk about buying that. He said, don't buy it. He said, get an 18, get one that's brand new. Make sure it's tricked out with every option. He said, it's time we started spending some of our money. She said, do you really feel that way? He said, yeah. He said, you know what? We've been, we've been, we've been holding back. It's time for us to spend that money. We made it, let's spend it. She said, well, if you really feel that way, I was just looking at this house that we've looked at before. It said we could never afford it. It's a million five. And he said, well, I'll tell you what, offer them a million four, and if they won't take it, go ahead and go up to asking price, because after all, you're worth it, baby. It's time we spent money. She said, all right. He ended the phone call, put the cell phone down. The other guy, other three guys in the foursome looked at him like he was crazy, and he said, hey, anybody know whose phone that was? <laughs> you know what? If you don't have a dog in the race, you don't have to worry about money. But that's the issue with couples. You know, we argue because we both have dogs in the race. And then the second reason why it's peculiar that we argue about money, because I don't know if you've ever thought about this or not, but money is math. You know, that's the thing. You can argue about a lot of things that are subjective in nature, and at the end of the argument, you know, you, can, you got a little give and a little take, but money is math. You know, money is, math is the same whether you're Republican or Democrat, whether you're conservative, socialist, liberal, whatever your politics are. Money is the same whether you're African, European, Asian. Facts are facts. Money's money. And the thing about arguing about math is, as my friend Paul Clark used to say, facts are stubborn things. You know, here, let, let me make a statement. Broccoli is good for us to have for dinner tonight. That's not a fact, is it? Because some people would say, yeah, it's good for me. Others would say, no, I hate broccoli. So that's a subjective statement. If I made the statement, you should buy a pickup instead of an SUV, well, that's not a fact, is it? It's an opinion, but it's not a fact. The problem with money is we treat something that is concrete and objective as though it's subjective. And therein lies our issue because we run up against the hard wall of fact. 
I think perhaps the oldest story I've told in all my career, but it's also been a story that's helped me deal with a lot of questions in my life and issues in regard to courses of action. The story is told of two ships who were approaching in the night, both on a collision course and drawing closer to each other as the minutes progressed. And both, I guess, figured that the other would make an adjustment. But when when no such adjustment was made, the radio came from one ship saying, alter your course 10 degrees to the north, collision is imminent. And the response came back from the other ship that said, alter your course 10 degrees to the south, collision is indeed imminent. Well, that just really got the first guy really upset, and he thought he would just pull rank, and he said, alter your course 10 degrees to the north. I am a captain, and the response came back, alter your course 10 degrees to the south. I am seaman third class. Well, that really made him upset, and the report came back from the first ship, alter your course 10 degrees to the north. I am a battleship, and the response came back, alter your course 10 degrees to the south. I am a lighthouse. You see, that's the thing about math. When we argue over money, we're arguing over math. And at the end of the argument, if the money is spent, then we're both running up against a hard wall, and it's not like running up against a discussion about whether or not we have broccoli for dinner tonight. So let's talk about arguing over money, and let's see what we can learn. Let me just let me do this. Let me just give you six facts of life about money, and these are channeled toward relationship. Although if you're single here today, these things are gonna be helpful and beneficial to you, whether you're single and you're dating, or you're single and you're thinking you'll be in a relationship someday, or even if you're retired and you're living on fixed income and you never expect to get married again, this will benefit us all. But I'm targeting couples in relationship to finances. So here's the first fact that I wanna give you, and it is money is important. You know, a lot of times we say, oh, it's not about the money, and we sort of behave, at least in our conversation, as though money is not all that important. But I just want to tell you, as a Bible teacher, as a follower of Jesus Christ, as someone who lives in the spiritual realm, money is still important. If you're dating here today, or you're seeking a relationship, let me tell you why money is important to you for a couple of reasons, and especially, and if you're married, you can still work through this process, but this is going to benefit those of you who are dating more than any, anybody else. <clears throat> money is an indicator of what is inside a person. How a person handles money is an indicator. For instance, I'll give you an example. Out there in the parking lot, many of you have an automobile, and that automobile has an instrument panel, and what is prominent in the instrument panel is warning lights. Suppose you want to go to a used car lot, a used car dealership, and you want to buy a used car. And you fire up the ignition, and all the warning lights come on. Well, that's not uncommon because that sort of happens in automobiles, but they go off after a second. But suppose you start driving down Rock Road or Kellogg or 13th or one of the streets around here, and you drive the automobile for a mile, and those warning lights stay on, and you're watching the temperature gauge, and it starts climbing, and it goes off into the red. Now, here's what you're going to do. You're going to drive the automobile back to the lot, no matter how shiny it is, no matter how pretty it is, no matter how much you like the tech gadgetry. You're going to drive the automobile back to the lot and say to the salesperson, I don't want this car. Why? Because the instrument panel has revealed to you that the automobile in serious ways and serious systems has trouble. And I'm just saying to you that when you see how someone handles money, it is an indicator of other larger issues. One of the questions today that couples are dealing with as they get close to marriage is should we combine our finances? 
Now, if you're a baby boomer or you're part of the great generation, chances are you haven't asked that question, but it's a very common question today because you've got single people. Many of them come into the relationship with debt and with with issues. And so this is a question that, that marriage counselors get asked a lot. Should we combine our finances? Hey, I'm not going to tell you the answer to that. What I am going to say to you is there's a larger question at stake. Now, first of all, let me give you this caveat. I'm not talking about older people who marry who have legacy issues. That's a totally different thing. What I'm talking about is people who are reluctant to combine finances because someone can't be trusted with an area of handling money. Now, here's the thing. If you can't trust someone to join finances with you, do you want to trust that person to join with you in raising up another human being? If you can't trust someone with a checkbook, do you want to trust them with your child? If you can't trust someone to be truthful and to be honest and above board and disciplined when it comes to finances, do you want to trust that person with your well-being in the future? So again, I'm not answering that question, should you combine finances? That's a, that, that begs a larger discussion with, with a professional. But I'm just saying to you, if someone can't handle finances, it's an indicator of some other issues as well. Here is the first thing I want to point out. How you handle finances tells the story of discipline in your life. And discipline will tell the story of your life. For years I've been a leader, and I've always been amazed at something. I've been amazed at how people who have enormous gift packages never really progress. On the other hand, I've noticed people who, and they've worked with me and still work with me, have modest gift packages, but they go to the absolute top. There is one thing you can always point to in those situations, and it's discipline. Can that person discipline their emotions? Can that person discipline their time? Can that person discipline their energy and creativeness? And so for all of us, we just need to know that money is one of the most visible external indicators of whether or not discipline is present in a person's life. Now, Jesus told a story that a lot of you are familiar with, and we call that story the prodigal son. The story goes like this. A young man, younger brother, said to his dad, I don't want to wait till you die. I want you to give me all my inheritance right now. And according to Jesus, the father did. Now, by the laws of the day, the primogenitor laws, a younger son of two would have gotten one-third of the estate, and the father evidently turned that over to the boy. He quickly liquidated it foolishly. I'm sure he lost a lot of equity that way. But he liquidated it foolishly, and here's what Jesus said. The younger son packed his bags, and left for a distant country. There, this Jesus word, undisciplined, he wasted everything he had. After he'd gone through his money, there was a bad famine through that country, and he began to hurt. He signed on with a citizen then who assigned him to his fig, uh, fields to slop the pigs. Now, let me ask you a question. You're very smart. North Auditorium, South Auditorium, watching online, watching on television. Let me ask you a question. Was he undisciplined? Because he wasted his money? Or did he waste his money because he was undisciplined? Jesus told us. He was undisciplined, and it revealed the fact that he was undisciplined by the fact that he wasted his money. So money's important. We've been talking about Dave Ramsey. Dave has a great statement. He says this about money. You must gain control over your money, or the lack of it will control you. In case anyone here is dodging the phone because bill collectors are calling, you know exactly what Dave Ramsey is talking about. Now, let's talk about 
money being an indicator in a different way. If you're dating someone, watch what a person does with money because what that person does with money will tell you what is important to that person. You will know the person's values. Vice President Biden has a, has a saying that I love a lot. He said, don't tell me what you value. Show me your budget and I'll tell you what you value. That's a good saying. Because when you watch how a person spends his or her money, you know what is important to them. Is it all about them? Is it all about how they look? Is it about, you know, playing a million video games? I mean, what, 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 what is important to that person? That person, the way they spend money, will tell you what is important. So I just want to first of all say that money is important, especially if you're dating. Watch it. It's an indicator of a lot larger issues. Here's the second thing. And I want to talk to, especially to couples now. Because I want you to know that conflict over money is serious. I'm giving away my age. But when I was younger, boxing used to be a big sport. And everybody watched boxing, at least through the 80s. And so, you know, I don't know a whole lot about boxing, but I've watched these boxing matches. And so when the fighters would get really in close and they'd start pummeling, uh, one of the boxers would put his gloves up over his head like this. Why? Because if you get hit in the head, you can get knocked out, and that can be the end of the match. So, you know, if a, if a boxer was being pummeled, he'd start putting his gloves up here. You know what the other fighter would do? The other fighter would begin to work on the body. Now, no fighter is going to be knocked out by being hit in the body, but... The reason why body blows were effective is it weakened the other fighter. Now, here's the thing about conflict over money. And, and, and please, there's some of you couples who haven't zoned in yet, I don't think, but you need to zone in here. You're saying, well, you know what? We argue over money all the time, but it's not a big thing because we get over it and we move on. Well, okay, it isn't a knockout punch. Arguing over an affair can be a knockout punch. But here's the thing. Arguing over money... Even though you may get over it and move on, damage is still being done. So I just want to leave that with you today. Conflict over money is serious. Well, let me tell you one of the reasons why. Whenever there's an argument over money, nine times out of ten, there will be some level, I'm trying so hard not to use this word, there will be some level of deception. Now, it may be, there may be reasons for it in that person's mind. But one person hasn't revealed to the other person that money has been spent or money that was expected to be in the account is not there. So what you have is you have two people in a marriage and one person hasn't been quite honest with the other person. And then when the truth comes out, there is a conflict. There is a headbutting conflict. Now, let me tell you why that's doing damage to the relationship. First of all, the person who is having to hide the ugly truth, whether he or she's done anything wrong or not, but the person who has had to hide the ugly truth is going to walk around with a sense of dread, a sense of fear, a, a sense of waiting for the other shoe to fall. Now, here's the problem with that. And you guys have already said, 99% of you said you're, in the, you're, very, you're happy in your marriage. But if you start dreading interacting with the other person, I can tell you what's going to happen. They'll start being distanced, you know? And then the second thing that can do damage in that kind of situation is just shock, you know? You sort of live every day like, oh, we, we know what we make. We know what we have in the bank. And, and the shock is almost always bad. If you ever get into a discussion with your significant other and it's like, hey, we have $5,000 more than we thought we had, that's not going to be a shock that's going to hurt you. But it's not usually that way, is it? 
it's usually we have less than we thought we had. Now, when you have less than you thought you had, something that was on the table and anticipated is taken off the table. A vacation that was being looked forward to, no longer there. Down payment on a house that you've been looking forward to buying, it's not there, it's been taken off the table. You know, something that you had hoped for is taken off the table. God forbid it's a car repair, or God forbid that it's a mortgage payment. But all I'm trying to say to us today is just, even if you're having conflict over money and you get over it, it's still doing damage. And ultimately, and we've led up to this already, the problem is lost trust. Hear me, New Spring, this is your data. When you were asked, how do you define love? And you were given a lot of words to choose from. How do you, these are 90% of people that are at least somewhat very happy in their marriage. You guys define love with this word overwhelmingly. Number one, you ready for it? You said love is trust. If trust is lost over finances, then what happens is, And by the way, you said honesty is number two. So consequently, if you define love as trust and you feel like the person that you're in a relationship with is not being honest with you, what is the the conclusion? You guys have gone through logic courses. You know the conclusion. Conclusion is person doesn't love me as much as I thought she did. He doesn't love me as much as I thought he did. And that's a shame because I think in most cases that there is great love there. We've already seen the numbers on that. But what happens is when trust is lost over finances, it creates all kinds of problems in a relationship. Let me give you fact number three. Fact number one was money is important. Fact number two is conflict over money is is doing damage. Uh, Number three, debt is a killer. Too often debt's a killer. Real quickly, let me give you some caveats to that. Mortgage debt is fine as long as you're right side up in your house and you bought a home that is reasonable for your budget. So I'm not talking about mortgage debt. Automobile, many of us when we're young, we have to get an automobile loan. But if you buy your car right, it's really smart. A lot of times to buy a car that's like a year or so old, that's got a few miles on it, but has high reliability rating. I love consumer reports. That's that's okay to have a little bit of debt when it comes to an automobile. Student loan. We live in a a world today where it's very hard to get into uh, a career if you don't have at least an undergraduate degree. And many people have to borrow money because college is so expensive today. But let me make a couple comments about that. If you have to borrow money for college, make sure that whatever you're borrowing is going to lead to a career. Like if you've always been interested in underwater basket weaving, just save cash for that and take that course. You can audit that, okay? But, but when you're borrowing money, it needs to lead to a career where that can be paid back. And let me just say this while I'm, while I'm talking. If you're borrowing money, for the Lord's sake, please go to class. I run into people a lot of times, I mean, sweet, sweet young people. I run into them, and they don't even have an undergraduate degree, and they have $100,000, $120,000 in, in student loans. And I'm like, that, that doesn't make any sense. But with, let's set that aside, that there are reasons to have debt for a house, sometimes in, 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 in a good situation for an automobile, and for student loan. Now, here's the thing. When you were asked about debt, when you, and this is about consumer debt, we're not talking about mortgages here. When you were asked about consumer debt, 19% of you said you have no debt. Okay, just really follow me with these numbers. 
19% of you said you have less than $10,000 in consumer debt. 62% of you said that you have more than $10,000 in consumer debt. Now, I want you to just, just hold that. Just hold that statistic in your lap. 62% of you say that you have more than $10,000 in consumer debt. In that same line of questioning, you were asked, in regard to finances, what do you fear the most? You ready for this? Men and women were the same with one percentage point different. 62% of men and 63% of women said, we fear Absence of security. Now, listen, I know numbers and I know statistics, and you have to ask yourself what's associational and what's causative, but I'll just tell you this. I find it rem remarkably interesting that 62% of you said we have more than $10,000 in consumer debt, and the identical number of you said we are concerned about security. If I'm drawing a conclusion from that, what it tells me is when we borrow money, we know we are doing something dangerous. It's just that we want something so bad right now that we borrow money and we put ourselves in a dangerous situation. The Bible says in Proverbs chapter 22, verse 7, the rich rules over the poor and the borrower is the slave to the lender. Now, I'm going to just go through some single things with number four. And the best way I can talk about it is just say, know the alligators. Um, <laughs> I think about this because... Um, when Jonathan was a senior in high school and he was getting ready to graduate in that spring, I was doing a speaking engagement down real close to the beach in the Sarasota, Bradenton area of Florida. And so I told Jonathan, well, you, you're welcome to go with me and we'll just spend a week, hang out in the sunshine. And uh, so we, we, we got to the campus of this church. The church had this beautiful apartment that was wonderfully appointed for guest speakers on the campus. And so the pastor showed us that, and then he started showing us the campus and the grounds. And as we got to the back of the campus, there was this beautiful landscape pond. And I said to Jonathan, I'm going to come out here every morning and have my devotions. And then the pastor started telling me about the pond. And, you know, people from Florida, they're sort of like people like me from Texas. They just have a different way of talking. So anyway, he's telling me about that pond out there. And he said, you know, we've got alligators out there in that pond. And I said, oh, really? And yeah, he just starts telling me this story like, you know, like, like it was nothing. He said, yeah, he said our associate pastor was out here the other night with his family, and they were having a picnic out there, and a dog ran and jumped into the pond. Alligator came, just got that dog, took it under. He said, you know, alligators love dogs. I mean, he said that just like it was rolling off his tongue. I'm like freaked out, you know, needing to call 911. I did tell Jonathan, I won't be coming out here to do my devotions. Now, here's the thing. When it comes to money, you need to know the alligators out there, and I'm going to give them to you pretty quickly, okay? Here's the first one. Covetousness is what the Bible calls it. It is the addiction to acquisition. It is the treadmill of acquisition. I have to have more stuff. Do you know the great transfer of wealth in the United States is the garage sale? Have you ever thought about that? I mean, let me ask you a question. Have you ever like gone to the, ever like put on a garage sale and just thought about all the, all the money that costs you retail? But we, we're addicted here in the United States. I mean, think about this. Billions of people in the world live on less than $2 a day. We are the richest people in the world. But for some reason, we can get short on money because we love things. The Bible says this in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5. Don't love money. Be satisfied with what you have. God said, I'll never fail you. God said, I'll make sure you have everything. So that's a real challenge, isn't it? You know what? If you're satisfied with what you have, you're rich today. 
If you have millions of dollars, but you're troubled because you can't buy what you want to buy, if you want to buy a Gulfstream or something, if you're troubled about that, you're not as rich as a person who has minimum wage who is happy with what they have. Another alligator out there is self-worth tied up with impressing people. You know, you guys are upwardly mobile, is what we used to say back in the 90s, and a lot of you are just climbing the ladders right now, and we're very proud of you. But here's the one thing I hear from, from leaders at New Spring who are climbing the ladder, is you'll say to me, hey, Mark, I'm, I just got a promotion, uh, and now I'm like running with a whole different group of people, and so I'm asking myself, do I, need to, do I need to move? Do I need to buy another house? So it'll be like the other people's houses that I'm in. Do I need to buy finer cars? Do I need to take vacations in more exotic places? I don't know the answer to that question. I just know this. It is a terrible mistake to tie up your self-worth with how you dress, what you drive, where you live. Because you're far too important for that. Jesus said your life is worth more than the whole world. And so you don't want your self-worth tied up with spending Will Rogers used to say, Americans are the only people in the world who buy things they don't need with money they don't have to impress people they don't like. So that's a great remember. Here's another one real quickly, talking about alligators. Self-medication by spending. If you're unhappy, chances are, if you're not careful, you'll get into self-medication. Sometimes it happens with substances. Sometimes it happens with sex. But here is the problem with self-medication, and it's the same across the board. Self-medication will never fix what's broken, and when you come off the high, you'll have two problems. You'll have the problem you started out with and the problem that you developed in self-medication. And today, with Amazon Prime, Lord knows we love it at our house. It's one click, right, baby? And it'll bring it to your door. So I just want to remind you that self-medication with spending is not a good thing. And this is a big one today. You know what? When I started 40 years ago speaking, I'm not sure how to put this one on my list. Gadget addiction. We live in a world today where your self-worth is tied up with, do you have the coolest gadget? This is a story that hit the media yesterday. Apple and Samsung are both under investigation for something called planned obsolescence. This is really interesting. They are accused of using software updates to slow down old devices, so you will say, I got to have the new one. Well, the reason why they're, if they're guilty of that, the reason why they're doing that is we are in a culture that has an addiction to gadgets. Zig Ziglar said this years ago. He's passed away, so his comment, although the principle of it is still with us, it's, it's a little bit behind times. But listen to this. Zig Ziglar said, poor people have big TVs and small libraries. Successful people have small TVs and big libraries. Well, TVs don't cost very much anymore. But his point's very important. What do you spend your money on, your, your elective money? Is it on entertainment, which there's probably a legitimate quotient there? Do you spend money on entertainment, or do you spend money on developing yourself? And so that's a great statement from Zig Ziglar. You need to know what's important. You need to know what's essential. You need to know, this is a big one, you need to know what's not you. How many have said bought stuff in order to be cool, and we looked at it and we said, that's not even me. And I want to go into a really sensitive, controversial area right now. So if you don't agree with me, that's fine. I may be wrong, but would you just at least hear me out? You need to know what's ridiculous, no matter what you make. Because I really think in America today, people spend ridiculous money for things that really don't enhance their lives. 
Now, if you're from Florida or Georgia and you're a fan, would you just cover up yours for a minute? Because you'll misunderstand what I'm about to say. But for the rest of us, when, when, when it was determined that Florida and Georgia are going to be in the NCAA title game, uh, and you know, two SEC teams in, for the national championship, I read the news the next day, and I found out that the least expensive ticket for the NCAA game at that moment was $2,000. Least expensive individual ticket, $2,000. Now, hey, I'm not saying that's ridiculous. All I'm saying is, sure caused my eyebrows to raise. I couldn't even buy a hot dog at that game. And, and again, I'm not picking on sports. I'm just saying, you need to know. Don't, don't listen to me on this. You need to know what is ridiculous at any price. How could you take money that is ridiculous money and use it appropriately to make a difference in the world? Just saying. Okay, I got four minutes, so here we go. Number five, we're talking about the facts of life for money with couples. Get together. Get together. You know what? If you have two builders, one builder, one builder working on a house during the daytime, another builder working at night, and the first builder's got plans for a ranch-style house, and the second one has plans for a storied-and-a-half house, you know what? When the next builder comes in, they're going to try to tear down what the first builder put up the day before, and never, nothing's ever going to get built. And I think that's what happens when it comes to money. A lot of times, a man and a woman have two different sets of plans. And so they're each tearing down what the other person is doing. So get together. Get together. Since money can't be spent twice, openness, transparency, honesty is essential. You said trust was number one. See, the problem that we have when, like we talked about a few moments ago, when we're sitting on something that we know when it comes out, it's going to start a fight. What oftentimes happens is we have little excuses that we use. Things like, well, I'll put it back into the account later. Or I had a reason not to tell you because I knew if I told you what happened, you'd just react badly. So since I knew you were going to react badly, I had a good reason for not telling you. Or you spend money too. Or, you know, you're in charge of the money, and I understand that, and you keep the accounts, but I make money too. I have a right to spend money too. It's strange, isn't it, how we have these little independent reasons why the problem exists. So the thing that you want to do is you want to get together. You want to make a plan. You want to make a budget. You want to make it reasonable. And here is the most important word in a relationship. It's the word our. Don't say, well, this is my husband's budget or this is my wife's budget. No, no, this is our budget. And stick to it. You know, you can have the best doctor in the world, but if you don't get a prescription filled, you can frame that prescription and put it on the wall and talk about what a great doctor you have. But if you don't get it filled and take the medication, it's not going to help you. Here is perhaps the most frightening statistic when I dived into the data. 23% of you at New Springs say that you live by a budget religiously. Forgive the word. But that 27% of you say you live by a budget religiously. 51% say we started one, but we didn't stick to it. 17% of you said, I'll start one someday. And honestly, this is true. 5% of you said, what's a budget? <laughs> okay. Now, let me just tell you this. Although 90% of us are somewhat happy, very happy, mostly happy in our relationship, 73% of us have a budget problem. You know, Daniel Dixon is our sound engineer. He told me something when he was micing me up for the 4 o'clock service last night. He said, you know, I never had a budget, but he said, I started one last year. He said it was like getting a raise. That's a great line. 
When I got through with the four o'clock sermon, I got a call from Rick Brock. He, is, he and Deb Brock lead our financial peace ministry. And Rick said, you know, Pastor, he said, what we discovered at financial peace is that people make great strides on their finances, but it was almost like a secondary thing. He said the big thing that came out of financial peace is that couples grew closer together because, and this was Rick's word, he said they enjoyed agreeing. They enjoyed the agreeing with each other. Last, and I will tell you this is the key to practically everything in leadership, at least in my life. Get out in front of it. Get out in front of it. See, here's the thing. If you've ever been in an argument over finances, what would have stopped that is to have gotten out in front of it and talked about what you were going to do before the money got spent or before the money got borrowed. But we wind up having the conversation after it's already spent, and we run up against that wall of math that we talked about. And so here's the thing. A lot of our discussions about money tend to be autopsies instead of health plans. This is the key to everything in life. I mean, if, if I could give advice to Apple and Samsung, not that they would want my advice, I would have said, get out in front of it. Don't wait for that story to come out in the media. Get out in front of it. Tell, 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 tell this from your side. If you've got something that you've done wrong, own up to it. So here's the thing. Get together. Get out in front of it. Don't wait for all the wheels to fall off. Talk about what you're going to do. Let it be our plan and stick to it. Well, all throughout this week, I never knew how I was going to end the message. And I was just sitting in, in, in my office at home, getting ready to come to the, or go to the four o'clock service last night. And I thought about the fact that a lot of you are going to hear this message and you're going to say, and this isn't true, but you're going to say, Mark, it's too late because we're in trouble. So here's what I did. I just took a piece of paper and I wrote down what I've learned about what I do when I'm in trouble. Okay, this is just me. I've been in trouble a lot. I made a lot of stupid decisions. And this is what I've learned about what I do when I'm in trouble. So you want my plan and I'll be through. Number one, you take responsibility. Now I wanna be real clear about something. Taking responsibility is not guilt. Guilt is worthless. You know, you ever hear somebody in the middle of an argument say, well, I did it. I'm just a fool. I'm just an idiot. I'm just a jerk. I'm never going to get it. You know, I'll tell you something. You're not hearing taking responsibility there. What you're hearing is anger. I mean, it's the same emotion where someone takes something valuable and destroys it. I mean, the thing about it is never, tell, never say that you're a fool. Never say that you're a jerk. Never say that you're a loser. You're a child of God. If you've accepted Jesus Christ, the Bible says you have more worth than the world. So when you get to that place, when you say, I'm a jerk, I'm just a loser, you're taking your soul, your self-worth, and you're smashing it up against the wall in anger. That, no, that doesn't help anybody. Taking responsibility says, I contributed to this problem, and I want it to change. And I'm willing to accept the responsibility not only of what went wrong, but I'm willing to accept the responsibility of how it can go right. You take responsibility. Here's the thing. Whenever you're in trouble, this is just what I've learned in life. Just hear me as an old man. I've learned that I can either deny or learn. If I deny, I'm going to repeat. Listen, if you're in trouble and you deny that you did it or you deny the real cause, you're going to repeat it over and over and over again. If you learn from it, it can become a teaching moment and it can become the foundation for a new life. So number one is take responsibility. Number two, be coachable. Coachable is what you're doing today. You're letting someone speak into your life 
And it's important to be coachable because, see, here's the problem with a person who isn't coachable. The opposite of coachable is stubborn. Stubborn says, I'm going to do what I want to do anyway. I had to make a hospital visit. There's a new springer who's about to pass away. So before I came to 4 o'clock service, I went to be a Christy San Francis. And as I was driving toward the hospital, coming on the other side of the road, um, there was another driver. And we were coming into an intersection where we both had green lights as long as we were going straight. But this lady, and she looked at me. She looked right at me. I knew she saw me because she just stared at me. And she made a left turn right in front of me. You say, Mark, were you angry? No. No, I was not. She had a child in the passenger seat. And I thought, lady, if you'd turned out in front of me and it was your door, that's one thing. When you turned in front of me deliberately and your child was in the passenger seat. See, you hear a lot of us, we're stubborn and we double down. And there are people in our lives that don't get a vote. And so it's really, really important to be coachable, to be someone who can hear the truth and say, I am going to respond to that truth. Let me give you a sentence, okay? This is a sentence that I've thought about many times in my life. Here we go. Trouble can be the catalyst for humility, and humility is the first step to success. Let me give it to you one more time. Hear me. This is huge. This is worth driving here for. Trouble can be the catalyst for humility, and humility is the first step to success. Did you notice that statement started with the word trouble and ended with the word success? It's true. Here's the final thing. I'm out of time. Restart. A lot of people don't want to restart because they've got too much invested in bad road. You say, well, Mark, I've just come so far. Made good time, but it's in the wrong direction. Throw it, just Here's the thing. If you're here today and you say, Mark, we're in trouble, okay, restart. It's not a bad thing to restart. All of us need a restart. I mean, if you think about salvation, what is salvation? Is God giving us a restart? Take responsibility. Be coachable and restart. Hi, I'm in overtime. Thanks for being here. God bless. We'll see you next weekend.